So the artwork on the front of your bulletin is an abstract painting that I've hanging in my office um, that doesn't have any words on it, but is a series title, and it's about the book of Acts. The, the painting was painted um, by a very gifted young woman who I asked to paint something that represents what we do on Sundays, which is gather. Church is not a building, it's a gathering of those who follow Jesus. While this amphitheater is beautiful, if we all go get up and go in the field, the church, the field then becomes the church, right? Um, the gathering is the followers of Jesus, and that has always been a messy, imperfect human endeavor that succeeds anyway because of the Holy Spirit and because it's true. It all actually happened. And if that's challenging to you, I hope that you'll research it. I'll give you a couple of things just from this chapter in the book of Acts to research, and, and maybe you'll enjoy that process. Um, and what's happening in chapter 22 is the Apostle Paul, perhaps you've heard of him, went to uh, Jerusalem, and he was told repeatedly that it would be dangerous to go. And I've been thinking about whether it was disobedient of him to ignore those warnings. My personal conclusion is no, because when God wanted to tell him not to go somewhere, he said it a little more explicitly. But in chapter 21, if you've read the book of Acts, there's this incredibly interesting series of events where people warn him that it's going to be dangerous. The most curious instance was someone comes and they actually take Paul's belt off of Paul. The guy binds his own hands and feet with it and says, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. So some, some of you think the Bible's a boring book. I feel like if we could successfully picture someone taking our own belt off and then tying their hands and feet up with it and saying, this is going to happen to you, then it happens in the next chapter, we might realize it's a very interesting book. So what's going to happen in chapter 22 is we're going to see the fulfillment of that prophecy, which doesn't, I don't, I don't think mean Paul was disobedient so much as the Holy Spirit is turning the direction of the evangelist evangelization of the world from Jerusalem to Rome. Not because Jerusalem doesn't matter, but in the Holy Spirit's providence, the center of the message for a little while is going to shift to Rome. So I'm going to read Acts 22 in parts this morning. If you have your Bible, that's kind of to the right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 22. And I'm just going to read verse 1 through 5. Brothers and fathers, which might sound like a curious way to introduce a speech. This is Paul speaking to the people that are very angry with him, uh, mostly Jewish men. It's a very respectful and deferential way of speaking to them. In the first century, this would have come across as incredibly honoring. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way. That was what uh, followers of Jesus were described as in the first century. That's not the only title, but that's the most common title for Christians was followers of the way. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison, both men and women. So the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. 
So Paul is pointing out the common ground he has, even as a follower of Jesus who wants to talk about the gospel of Jesus, he also wants the people to know, I used to be where you are. And maybe even subtly pointing out that he did a better job of persecuting the church than these men and women in front of him. But what he's doing is he's pointing out the common ground that they have. He remembers what it was like as a follower of God who did not yet believe that Jesus was the Christ, how angry that made him. And he persecuted the church for it. One of the many things about this is, that's interesting is that story is told earlier in the book of Acts and it continues to connect and make sense and be consistent with itself as a historical document. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, the book of Acts is incredibly historically verifiable, which I think is worth noting. The other thing that's happening here, and I'm going I'm to spell this out and I'm, I'm going to stretch it a little for reasons I believe are good. Paul is offering to them friendship in the moment. He's overlooking their anger at him. Then he's finding common ground with them. Then he's going to explain the good news of Jesus. If you're a note taker, I'm going to label these a couple times. If you're not, that's okay. I'm sure you'll remember it. Friendship plus common ground Areas of common understanding, either in the culture or in intellectual or historical places or religious places. Okay, so common ground is a big concept. So friendship plus common ground plus the good news equals evangelism. The reason that's important to say is, first of all, it's true. Second of all, when we leave out one of those components, we're really doing something harmful. If we leave out friendship, where's the sincerity? with which we want to talk to someone about Jesus. Do they actually believe that we like them and love them because of the love of God? Or are they going to think that maybe they're a a notch on our quota of salvation quests? But if we have friendship, but we have found no common ground, the gospel can be unintelligible. If you're talking with someone that's not a follower of Jesus and has no concept for things of the Bible, doesn't know the story of Scripture, probably doesn't believe in sin, if you don't find a way, if you don't find common ground between what their life and yours, what they know and what you know, then the good news of Jesus, that God loves us and likes us, that because of the work of Christ, we can be reconciled to Him through faith, just sounds like gibberish. And again, we find common ground through movies that we like where we see the story of redemption. Most movies have some element of redemption in it, even if it's not concluded, especially in our post-post-secular age where the idea of redemption kind of frightens us. There's still an idea of it. And in those films, we can find common ground or books or music. You cannot listen to more than a couple of pop songs without hearing the longing, the loneliness at least an interest in spiritual things. But then the, the, the third piece that's important is actually having, is there actually being good news. If you have found friendship and common ground, but you're not sharing that Jesus really existed, to use the phrasing of Acts that he was the Christ, then there isn't good news that you're sharing. You're doing something perhaps noble and human, and then you have friendship and you've established common ground then perhaps it is time to share the love of God, the work of Christ that reconciles in the Holy Spirit. And if we have all three of those things but don't end up sharing them, 
well, then we've missed an opportunity. I want to ask this question too, and it's going to sound a little harsher, I think, initially than, than you might receive it, or than if we, if we work it out a little bit, realize it is. What is the point of the stories that you tell people? Is it to be funny? That's good. That's common ground. Humor is a place of common ground. Is it uh, to relate? A lot of times we're telling a story and, or someone's telling us a story and we wonder if they know that we can relate to that a little bit. And so we tell a story of relating. But sometimes we tell stories because we want to one-up people. And the only goal that we have at the water cooler, at break, at lunch, I mean, when you're at work, you're supposed to be working. But when you're on break, you have an opportunity to befriend the people that you work with or at the playground. My encouragement in light of what I just said about friendship plus common ground plus good news equals evangelism is this. Consider the stories that you tell and why you tell them. I know you're funny. That's good. That's common ground. I know that you can relate to a lot of the stories told to you and it's good to relate to them. But keep an eye on those stories, not because every conversation needs to turn into evangelism. It actually doesn't. That would be harmful. Some can, though, and one of the ways that we can become more skilled at friendship, which will lead to evangelism, is to consider the stories that we're telling and why we're telling them. From a tactical standpoint, those of you that love God and you have a number of friends and family members that um, you long for them to at least understand the gospel of Jesus now and receive it, from a tactic standpoint, Common ground is the thing that is, is rarely thought about and is, in fact, the most important to having a robust conversation. So that's my encouragement. If you have a family gathering coming up, maybe in a couple of months, you know you're going to see this coworker at a party and you want to talk to them a little bit, that's the thing to look for. Not wait until they take a breath so then you can jump in and say, Jesus, a bunch of times, and I've done that. Let me be clear. And I really regret it and have even asked people's forgiveness for jumping ahead. The thing I want to encourage you on is to consider where you have common ground with that person or where they could, the common ground of their uh, cultural moment or the music they like or the films or the books could lead you to, to have a more robust conversation with. From a tactical standpoint, this is often the overlooked aspect of sharing the gospel. So Paul points out his common ground in verses 1 through 5. Then he tells his story. Simon so read verse 6 through 16. And I want to point out a couple of things before I read it that you might be listening for, that I've noticed in the text and and heard other people say about it, and I'm like, oh, right. One, he's going to recount five miracles to them. I remind you that, that we can verify so much of the book of Acts, and here's a speech from a man, pretty historically uh, validated, where he says five, essentially five miracles happened to him. He's going to tell them stories that they would remember about figures from Jerusalem from a few years past. And then the other thing I want to point out is that a man who had not a shred of humility tells this story with humility because as he became a follower of Jesus, he was instantly and then increasingly grown in humility. If you have your Bible, I'm picking up in verse 6. This is Paul speaking. As I was on my way... And drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Like, I thought his name was Paul. He kind of went by both names, but after becoming a follower of Jesus, he received a new name. This happens often in scripture as a way of helping us understand that it's new life. 
And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand. Miracle number two, the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, another way of honoring his listeners, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. If you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. I'm not supposed to read that part. It's in notes part three. Pretend I didn't read verse 17, lead to 16. A number of you, when you join the church, have, have said um, in, the, in the class that we do, that's more of a, a, a small group than a class, you've said, I grew up in a Christian home, and you say it in such a way that I'm afraid you think it's boring. And the reason I'm bringing it up is, uh, I think it's important that we know how to tell our own story in light of the pursuing love of God, and in light of the faith that we have in Jesus, those of us that are followers of Jesus. I want to say that if the God of the universe called you to himself using such imperfect vessels as your mom and dad, or your mom, or your dad, that's amazing and beautiful and very, very not boring. If your parents were called to be stewards in some measure, of your life as the Holy Spirit drew you to himself. That's really not boring. For those of you that that know your story in light of the gospel, and it's not at all like that, you might not have to work as hard. But for those of you that have always known of the gospel of Jesus, perhaps you don't know how bent and violent the world is, both spiritually and humanly so you don't realize that that's actually beautiful and remarkable and anything but boring. The reason I say that is, like the Apostle Paul, we have an opportunity to learn to summarize the good news of Jesus amidst our own story. Peter calls this giving an account for the hope that is in you. I hope that you both know how to summarize the gospel of Jesus and you know how to summarize it in light of how he has given you hope and peace, guiding you to himself. I also want to point out very briefly, both because I've covered this before and I'm going to cover it in this sermon a little bit more extensively in just a minute. It's amazing how interconnected this book is with other letters and books written in the New Testament, and how historically verifiable that is. Whether you're a follower of Jesus, 
or not. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope that encourages you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, yet another reason to consider the interconnectedness of this text is historically and evidentially verifiable. Though I cannot prove to you that Paul regained his sight, we have multiple accounts that a lot of people think would hold up in a court of law for that testimony of miracle. Paul points out the common ground that he has with these angry Jewish folks, then tells his own story, which includes a call to all people. Now I'll pick up in verse 17 and attempt to stop reading when my notes say I should stop. And when I'd returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, They themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Even though my notes don't say, I need to read verse 22 so you understand what I'm about to say. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. If you're tracking with the text, what just went through your mind was, well, that escalated quickly. Here's what happened. They're not bothered by Paul's recounting of historical events. They're bothered because these Jewish men had some kind of a pride and probably a, a, a racial problem with the fact that it was now abundantly clear that the good news was for all people. In no way am I making a statement about all of the men and women in the book of Acts who profess faith in God through Judaism. In fact, the Bereans were described as honorable Jews. Just like in our world, people of all faiths and just about all nations that I know of struggle with letting their racial pride, which is a good thing, turn into racism, which is evil. So that's why it escalated so quickly. And what makes me sad about this, and what I want us to notice, is that Paul goes out of his way, almost verse by verse, to honor their traditions, to honor the Jewish way of thinking about God, to honor the law which the Jews saw as as a means of salvation, some of them. And Jesus said, no. Paul goes out of his way to honor them. That's why he's speaking in Hebrew. Paul would consider himself a faithful Jew because he believed that Jesus was the Christ. And Paul longed for them to live in light of the freedom that still has the law of God, but does not see in it the ability to save anyone, but is instead a picture of God's holiness, a picture of our need, and a guide. That's what the law of God actually is. So verse by verse, and this happens in chapter 21 also, where Paul goes through some ritual purification, which he probably hated doing, but he did it to honor what they believed. That's why he's speaking in Hebrew. That's why he's going through the stories. That's why he's saying, I used to persecute them even worse than you're about to persecute me. And then they still... Uh, seize him and tie him up and take him to the local uh, government officials. And I believe the reason is predominantly uh, a racist element. It's good to be proud of our heritage until it blocks neighbor love. 
It is good to love our country till it blocks neighbor love. It is good to be thankful for and even proud of, if we have a good definition of pride, our religion until it blocks neighbor love. Because if you're a Christian and the pride in your Christianity blocks neighbor love, then you're doing something so profoundly unchristian. I think that's what's happening in Acts chapter 22 for all of those reasons. And I'm going to say something, and I don't know how good my words are. I've rewritten this part of my sermon a number of times. Racism is a very sneaky and horrible sin. There are still jokes that I learned as a kid, and they pop up in my brain. Maybe that's not true for you. It is for me. And so when I go through Acts chapter 22, I notice that humans are prone to take good things and turn them into evil things without the help of the gospel and of friends and of prayer and especially of repentance. When I note it in myself, I repent. When I note it in public, I do what I can, when I can. And the reason I'm saying it that vaguely is I'm not at all sure social media has anything to do with this. But I do know that when our town did an anti-racist rally, I showed up as a pastor and was thankful they wanted me to be there. And a newer friend of mine who's a deacon at St. Mary's, black man, he said, you're on the right side. I was grateful for that. And what I want us to understand is that this is a problem and it's probably in us. And what I used to believe is that the answer to the problem is the gospel. I still believe that's the answer. And I know that I have a role of repenting anytime and every time. I see this played out in a public way where I have a role or in my own head and my own heart. And maybe it never comes up in your heart and mind. And if so, please thank God for that. But I know that racism is a very sneaky and horrible sin that Christians and Christian institutions need to repent of. And I believe it is why this story escalates so quickly and horribly in verse 22. But then in the Holy Spirit's providence, the whole story of the book of Acts is going to shift towards Rome. I pick up in verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and fleeing dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum, because it was a big deal to be a Roman citizen. All was won by birth. But this man had actually purchased his own, which probably means he was a soldier. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. 
So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him, which was very illegal. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So after the prophecy that he shouldn't go, or that he should notice that it's going to be dangerous to go to Jerusalem, after many other beatings that Paul received in the book of Acts, where he didn't invoke his citizenship, he does now. He says he's a citizen. And he does this, and this moves the focus of the early church growth away from Jerusalem. Doesn't mean there wasn't a church in Jerusalem after this. There was. And that happened because the Holy Spirit desired and willed for it to happen. And one thing I want to point out about this, I mentioned this before, and I think it's really interesting, and if you think it's really uninteresting, you're welcome to email me. You really are. This is reflective of three different kinds of Roman laws that we have historical reference of that Paul's referencing. The laws of Valerius, Porcius, and Sempronius. If you want to Google it on your phone, especially if you're not finding this sermon compelling, Google Lex Valeria. Sounds like a new kind of sci-fi movie. Lex Valeria, and you'll find two kinds of laws. One is this, which was to protect Roman citizens abroad. They could not be beaten. They were not allowed to be. The centurion could actually be punished if he allowed Paul to be beaten. And the reason that I mention that to you is the way that Luke describes the governments of the system of Acts, of the book of Acts, all around the Mediterranean, and the way that he describes the way that Roman law worked, we continue to find historical evidence for. And you're wondering, why do you keep bringing this up? Why does it matter to me? If you're a follower of Jesus and you're having trouble sleeping, and you're praying. And God hears that prayer. Part of your brain is wondering, but is it true? And that's why it's important to note so many extant historical pieces of evidence that we have that all these people existed. Again, I cannot prove the miracles to you, but I can tell you that these are about the most verifiable historical figures of this period of time in all of history all around the world because the Bible continued to be copied and translated and because we have sources antagonistic to the Christian faith that will back this up. My struggle is more in the morning, not as much at night, though I do pray at night. And I'm praying in the morning, and the day seems like too much for me. And I know how to speak the good news of Jesus to myself in the morning when I think I'm not enough for the world. And part of the backbone of that faith is knowing that this is not a religion that exists outside of time, space, and history. You see what I'm saying? Jesus described the gospel as the kingdom. Later, Paul is going to summarize the kingdom as righteousness, joy, and peace. That sounds nice. And it sounds really comforting when I recognize that it's historically verifiable. It's not just existentially satisfying to me, though it is. It's also historically verifiable that these things happened. It was actually against the law to beat Paul. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope that encourages you. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that you'll consider the gospel of Jesus, that God loves you, that because of the work of Christ, we're reconciled to him, something we desperately 100% need. And that he has a role for each one of us to play in his kingdom. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much, not only for coming to earth and revealing yourself and telling us about a kingdom that we can experience immediately, even in a broken world, but for doing so in such a way that is historically verifiable. Thank you also for acorns. Thank you that they're not hitting me. Father in heaven, would you father us in this moment? Those of us that are your followers, would you comfort us? Those that are considering the gospel of Jesus, would you help us to consider? Would you come alongside us, Holy Spirit? Father, we look to you for hope and for guidance and for peace. All these things you offer help us to believe in you and thereby receive that comfort and hope and peace. Amen.